0: Today's episode is proudly sponsored by the Rising Tide Mastermind. The term mastermind was originally written in Napoleon Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich. Before that, the earliest documentation that we have of a mastermind group was Ben Franklin's group that he used to meet every single week in a tavern that he called Huntus. Nation, there's no doubt about it, life is too short to do it alone, and it's not very much fun to do it alone in. Nation, I urge you to go to scalinguph2o.com and find out if the Rising Tide Mastermind is right for you. I'd love to have a 15-minute call with you to explain all things Rising Tide Mastermind and see if this is a group that's right for you and you are right for the group. Go to ScalingUpH2O.com forward slash mastermind. Welcome to the Scaling Up H2O podcast, the podcast where we scale up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. My name is Trace Blackmore, the host of this awesome podcast, and I want to thank you for listening today. So many listeners are listening on a regular basis to not only build up their knowledge on industrial water treatment, but to feel as they are part of a community. And that community is the Scaling Up Nation. And folks, I have to say, when I started this podcast over seven years ago, I hoped that a few people would listen to it. What I never imagined was the community that would come from the listeners of this podcast. And Scaling Up Nation, I am just so amazed every time I go to an event and I see so many people wearing their Scaling Up H2O buttons to symbolize that they listen to this podcast. And I see them meet with other people wearing scaling up H2O buttons, and they'll walk down exhibit halls together. They'll go to technical papers together. And I just think that that is so amazing because that's really what this industry is all about, Anybody can do water treatment, but why would you do it alone when you are able to do it with comrades, with friends, with people that you trust, with people that can help you with issues that you are experiencing? Well, all that's nice to say, but how do you start that conversation And it's so cool when I go to these conferences and if you're wondering where you get a Scaling Up H2O button, if you see me or any one of our great team members at a water conference, we are always giving out buttons and then people will wear those buttons to future conferences so they can be identified as Scaling Up Nation members. And like I said, people... We'll seek each other out and say, hey, I listened to that podcast too. What technical paper are you getting ready to go to? Or what training are you enrolled in? And that starts a conversation and ultimately a brand new friendship. That has just been beyond my wildest dreams when I started this podcast. So for all of you that are doing that and making the Scaling Up Nation what it is, I want To commend you and I want to urge you to keep that up because that brings a level of what we do in our industry. It it brings it to a higher level where one, we're not doing it alone, two, we're able to talk with other people about our day to day without having to tell people what it is that our day to day is. And we're able to have more fun. We're able to solve problems. We're able to process issues. So all of that to say, I just am so humbled that we have the Scaling Up Nation. So Scaling Up Nation, here is to you. Thank you for not only listening to this podcast, but creating a community and being part of something that carries out our mission, which is to raise the bar in the industrial water treatment industry, one water treater at a time. And I am so happy to say that we have tens of thousands of members of the Scaling Up Nation. You know, when I go to those conferences, a lot of people will tell me that they didn't even know that the conference we were at was coming up unless they listened to this podcast. And this is something we started a couple years ago. There's just so much information out there, and you are so busy driving from account to account, servicing accounts, talking to customers, doing all the things that you have to do in your job. How can you possibly keep up with all the conferences, with all the different trainings that are coming up so you can schedule it in your calendar? Well, that's where the great team of Scaling Up H2O came up with our events page, and that's scalinguph2o.com forward slash events, or you can go directly to navigating in the top menu and going over to events, but it has everything that we know of that pertains to our industry. So you can simply click and plan the entire year. In fact, we've got more than an entire year up there. A lot of people plan their conferences for years in advance, and that's up on our calendar. So here are a few things that you might want to attend. March 4th through 7th, the Membrane Technology Conference is taking place in West Palm Beach, Florida. So this is all about new directions in water and wastewater technologies dealing with membranes. This is hosted by the American Water Works Association. And if you want more information about this, it of course will be on our event section of our website. Nation, this next one is something that I look forward to each and every year because I am personally involved. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about the Association of Water Technologies Technical Training Seminars. And of course, we do that twice a year. And all the courses that are available, we have an RO training. We have a sales training. We have a fundamentals and applications training. We have a technical training. We have a wastewater training. And there's even an ASSE 12,080 training. So there is something for everybody. And you've got two opportunities to take these. And maybe you take one of the courses on one, and then you take another one on the following one. So what are those dates. Well, the first date is March 6th through 9th. That's going to be in Frisco, Texas. And then we have another one, April 17th through 20th in Cleveland, Ohio. So go to our events page and we're going to have all that information for you. We're going to make it very easy for you to figure out which course you want to sign up for. And folks, by all means, if you attend one or both of these, please make sure you come up and find me. I love meeting members of the Scaling Up Nation. And I'll even give you one of those buttons that we were talking about in the very beginning of this show. Well, what else is going on? We've got the Water Loss Conference in San Sebastian, Spain. So if you are over there, you wanna check that out April 14th through 17th. And that is hosted by the International Water Association. We're gonna have all the information about that conference on our events page. And then finally, this is a big conference. This is the American Boiler Manufacturers Association Boiler Technology Conference and Expo taking place in Denver, Colorado, May 1st and 2nd. This is all things boilers. And this is an amazing show if you have never been. So if you wanna check that out, we will have that in. And everything I mentioned, and even things I did not mention on our events page. You can go there by scalinguph2o.com and navigating over to the events page. Nation, as always, we are looking to learn on this podcast, and our friend James McDonald helps us each and every week with that. So here's a brand new drop-by-drop with
1: James. <laughs> Welcome to Drop by Drop with James, the podcast segment where we wonder, explore, think about, imagine and learn industrial water treatment, you guessed it, drop by drop, together. In today's episode, I have a useful little quote from the 2021 edition of the Consensus on Operating Practices for the Control of Feedwater and Boiler Water Chemistry in Industrial and Institutional Boilers. Catchy title. By the American Society of Mechanical Engineers or ASTM. It says, <clears throat> where a choice is available, the reduction or removal of objectionable constituents by pretreatment external to the boiler is always preferable to, and more reliable than, management of these constituents within the boiler by internal chemical treatment, which involves boiler blowdown and chemical feed to the boiler system. Chew on that for a minute. Where a choice is available, the reduction or removal of objectionable constituents by pretreatment external to the boiler is always preferable to, and more reliable than, management of these constituents within the boiler by internal chemical treatment. As vital and important as internal chemical treatment is to a boiler, consider all the ways it could fail. Would you rather manage hardness in your boiler with internal chemical treatment or by using pretreatment such as a water softener? Think about the benefits of other pretreatment as well. I've always considered this one particular line within these guidelines to be a very powerful sentence. I've used it to help justify my pretreatment recommendations as third party support for softeners, reverse osmosis, etc. I'm James McDonald, and I want to encourage you to be like water by forming bonds with those around you, dissolving new knowledge, and making worthy ripples drop by drop.
0: Well, thank you, James. Nation, we mentioned the Membrane Technology Conference taking place March 4th through 7th in West Palm Beach, Florida. Well, what a good opportunity to invite a guest to talk about membrane technology. Here's that interview. My lab partner today is Chris Rover of ZwitterCo. Welcome, Chris. Glad to be here. Well, we are happy to have you on the Scaling Up H2O podcast, and I would love it if you would introduce yourself to the Scaling Up
2: Nation. Sure. So, uh, as you said, my name is Chris Drover. Um, I'm one of the co-founders and currently the CTO uh, of Zwitterco. I came out of Forward osmosis before ZwitterCo. So I've been around the, the water and water technology industry for about 10 or 11 years now. And so mainly a focus on on membranes and membrane technology, but I've touched a, a lot of different pieces of that. So, you know, I think that's that's kind of a little bit of my journey, how I, I came into it. But uh, we started ZwitterCo in, in 2018. And, uh, you know, it's been a journey ever since. What does your
0: day-to-day look like?
2: So today, you know, I... I'm very heavily involved with our with our R&D teams, right? So we're working on a lot of new membrane technology. And then I spend quite a bit of time on the business strategy, just as, as part of the founding team and the leadership team and thinking about the markets that, you know, we see as attractive and where we think our technology can can help make a difference. And I do spend some time, especially on those emerging market ideas where we're not really sure how the technology is going to fit super well, or maybe it needs to be adapted and used in a different way, because there's a lot of different ways that people are, are tackling these water challenges. So as a membrane technology provider, we supply the membranes, but we get pretty involved, especially in those kind of early exploration of, of how the membranes are going to be used, supporting our customers, supporting our partners, and thinking through the different ways that they might use it. You know, so an example might be, in some cases, you know, you might drop a membrane into an existing process to maybe improve the effluent or pre-concentrate the input. In other cases, you're, you're taking out, you know, maybe what was done before and replacing it entirely with a membrane system. So I spend quite a bit of time on the target applications where we're trying to understand what attributes of our technology can help with that uh, problem we're trying to solve because it takes a lot of deep understanding of exactly what makes it tick to think of different ways you might use it.
0: Well, let's start our conversation with talking about wastewater. So, if someone were to call you and they said that they wanted to deplore some of the technologies that you have in their wastewater operation, what are some of the questions that you're going to be asking from them and how would you decide that you do have something that would improve their operation?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So... In almost every case, you know, the, the first thing we're trying to understand is how do you deal with this today? You know, what are you doing today? And so we've seen everything from they've got a treatment system, maybe maybe it's a different kind of a membrane, or maybe they're using a biological system. We've seen we discharge it. We've seen we haul it away, you know, because we can't treat it and, and we don't know what else to do with it. So we always try to ground ourselves, you know, especially when it's a, when it's a plant that already exists with what's happening right now. Usually after that, we try to understand what's their end goal. You know, it might be that they need more, they want to reuse some of that water for expansion, or they're really struggling meeting their permit requirements, or just the costs are too high. Whatever they're doing right now is too expensive. And then finally, we we try to understand, you know, have you tried anything else? You know, and so some of the things we look for is, you know, maybe someone tried Uh, a memory technology before and they had a lot of problems with fouling or cleaning or, you know, they tried another technology and the water quality just wasn't quite there and they couldn't, you know, reach the levels they wanted. So there's some of the clues that we look for that says, hey, this this might be the right answer for them. You know, usually if the answers to those questions are, we have a conventional water treatment system, it runs well, we meet our effluent goals and the costs are in check, you know, it's less likely that we have a, a really compelling solution for them.
0: What are some of the traditional issues that you run into when you're using membranes? So for a long time,
2: you know, membranes have have been expanding in the market very quickly, right? So there's just been uh, membrane growth has, has been outstripping uh, a lot of other technology for many years because it, it offers a lot of really nice advantages um, when you're treating water and wastewater. When as people have pushed membranes into, you know, let's call it unconventional applications, where you're taking maybe untreated effluent from a factory or you know, you're trying to you know, treat something that looks a lot more like industrial waste than say municipal waste, you run into this problem of, of fouling. And so what, you know, what fouling is, is you know, anybody that's sort of used a filter has gone through that experience of like the pressure on the filter is going up, the flow is going down. And it's a little bit different for a membrane because they're run in in what's called a tangential flow mode. And so you have already some of the fluid is going through the membrane and some is is passing out as concentrate. But it's sort of the same idea. All these organic molecules, all these oils and proteins and and the stuff that you're removing from the water impacts on the surface and increases the pressure, reduces the flow. And so we really think about that as two different phenomena that are going on. And one of them is, is kind of You can deal with it operationally, and that's the formation of this kind of film on the surface, and you go through different ways of cleaning that off, and some technologies use back flushing, and and some use chemical cleaning. But what a lot of people have experienced in these wastewaters is, is an irreversible loss of performance, and that's usually attributed to all these, you know, fine organic molecules and oils accumulating within the little microscopic holes in the membrane and getting lodged in there. And they're very hard to displace once they're, once they're embedded. So that's been one of the sort of Achilles heels, if you will, of putting membranes into more and more heavily contaminated wastewater is keeping them performing for long enough to recoup the investment. And that's where we think our technology, you know, is, is really a step change and makes a big difference. And that's what, it's, that's what our market focus is, is unconventional waters that have a lot of challenges with, with fouling of membranes.
0: Well, let's talk about your company name and what exactly a Zwitter Ion is.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So exactly. We're, we're named after zwitter ions. Um, and so zwitter ions came out of some research in Germany, right? Um, you know, or earlier on in chemistry and chemists started to identify types of molecules that Seemed, you know, they were very confusing at first. And this is kind of before the era of our modern chemical instruments. But you know, they they exhibited all the the chemical behaviors you'd expect from a salt. So they seem to react to electric fields, they're ionized, they really seem like they're they're an ion. But they know, because they synthesized it, that they are in fact organic molecules. And they furthermore showed evidence of having both positive and negative charges. And so what a zwitterion is is exactly that. It's an organic molecule that has uh, a part of the, the molecule, uh, you know, a specific um, you know cluster of atoms, a functional group, that's uh, fully ionized and is a cation, a positive ion, and then another part of it uh, that's, that's anionic and that's a full negative ion. And so there are natural examples of this. Some of the amino acids fall in this category. Some of them are permanently zwitterionic, which means... They exhibit that spitter ion trait across the whole pH range. And some of them only show this property in certain pH ranges. So what's really interesting about this chemistry is it it's kind of this almost like you know the Venn diagram of on one hand, you have inorganic salts and they're electrolytes, and they, you know, we can sort of we know what to expect. They increase the conductivity of water, they react to electric fields, they're very hydrophilic, and then you have organic molecules that are traditionally you know, more hydrophobic, you know, and don't react to all these phenomena. And ions are right in the middle. And so you have these uh, organic molecules, and we can do things like polymerize them, and we can use a lot of the synthetic chemistry techniques to manipulate them into materials. But they are also permanently ionized. And that means they're incredibly hydrophilic. And so that means you know, water is really attracted to those ion groups and very strongly solvates them. And this means that when you make materials out of zwitter ions, they tend to really attract water molecules, you know, really at the molecular level. And the sort of the corollary to that is that oil and other inorganics actually have—or or, I'm sorry, other organics— have a really hard time sticking to them and absorbing to them because they're just soaking up water so quickly. And so we named the company after this because our, you know, all of our core IP derives from how to how to build membranes out of zwitterions. ions. And there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into it. It's actually, it sounds great. You're like, oh, we're gonna make this membrane out of this really hydrophilic material. And people, people tried it, you know, I mean, even you know, 10, 15 years ago, you know, the problem with really hydrophilic materials is they dissolve in water. (laughs) So you have to get a little bit uh, sharper in your chemistry approach to actually uh, make a durable surface out of something that that, uh, is that strongly solvated by water.
0: So you obviously found a way to combine the zwitterion technology with the membrane. What does that do to the membrane?
2: Yeah. And I, and I don't want to take too, too much of the credit for that. So, you know, we have a, a strong relationship with, with Tufts University, which some research groups there did a lot of the early foundational work on this and, and developed the core IP. And so, um, you know, myself and the other co-founders all have connections to Tufts, and we licensed that IP to, to form the company. But I don't want to certainly deny credit to the very talented researchers that, that did the foundational work on this. What this does for membranes is by building these membranes out of zwitterionic materials, we can give them this really hydrophilic property that makes them virtually immune to that second fouling we talked about earlier, which is that idea of that permanent absorption of oil and organics into the, the pores of a membrane. One of the analogies I like to use to help people kind of visualize this, you know, people think of a membrane almost like a pasta strainer, you know, like this plane with holes in it. And that's actually the wrong way to picture it. Uh, a membrane looks a lot more like a kitchen sponge, right? So it's got 3D structure, and it's like a, you know, there's a lot of pores in it as you move through the material. And I think if anybody has ever dipped a sponge in, you know, grease and then tried to get all the grease out of the sponge, you've got a really good idea of what's happening at the, at the microscopic level when you have membrane fouling. So our membranes are built a bit differently. They use this smitterionic chemistry and the zwitter ions are just really, really resistant to absorbing any of that oil or grease material. And that allows them to be really easily cleaned even under you know, really harsh upset conditions where you know, normally you'd be, you'd be thinking about buying new membranes at that point.
0: In a typical RO, you look for a change in pressure across the membrane in order to know when you're going to clean it. Is that the same thing that you're doing with these membranes? How do you know when they need to be cleaned? And then a follow-up question is, what do you clean them with? Yeah, no, that's,
2: that's a great question. So, so that was kind of our first thought you know, when we first started trying to see what the technology could do. We certainly started from what had been done before. Through a lot of our early testing with our customers, we realized a couple things. The first was that those usual cutoffs of, you know, hey, you're going to, you know, once your pressure increases 10% or so, you're going to clean, we can actually be a lot more flexible because we're not worried about, you know, usually with a conventional RO or conventional membrane, there's a fear that if you let that build up too far, you're not going to be able to reverse it. And we just don't have that problem. We've, we've experimented with letting, the, the pressures go up by a factor of 10 before we clean, you know, sort of simulating a, a really bad upset and you could still clean them back to, to uh, their starting performance. What we clean with, I mean, obviously it varies a little bit uh, industry to industry, but one of the themes is it's generally much more mild and much cheaper to pull off. So a really common cleaning regimen for us would be a 50 part per million bleach solution that we raise the pH up to you know 11 or so And you can clean without an ambient temperature. You just kind of recirculate it over the membranes 30 minutes and you should be back to your starting performance. In cases where you have specialty contaminants, like if there's a lot of iron in the water and you 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 might end up with some citric acid or something. um, So you can use a lot of the usual, you know, knowledge that's been accumulated in the industry about how to clean membranes. But we also have cases where customers water flush their membranes every day and they haven't cleaned in months. So, you know, it... I, I'll give the usual water industry answer of it depends. <laughs> it depends. I'm familiar with that. Yeah, and, and part of it reflects, you know, we've treated an enormous variety. You know, we've got a, a project we're working on right now that looks a lot, you know, it's a 20 ppm COD, 10 ppm TSS, and that's a really high flux application where we're, we're just water rinsing to clean. And on the other end, we've, we've treated fluids that, you know, the concentrate is approaching 10% oil and grease. And so that's a different ballpark for your cleaning regimen.
0: So typically in a normal membrane situation, we're looking out for fat soils and greases, biological contamination, maybe high chlorine coming in from the city water. How does your technology change how we look at those things?
2: Yeah. So, you know, it's important to think about what our technology removes and what it doesn't, right? So it's not an RO technology, at least not our first product, the super filtration that we have out on the market. What it excels at is removing oil and grease, you know organic biopolymers, algae, viruses, bacteria. So it really sits down at the very tight end of ultrafiltration, if you think about the conventional technologies. Now, in terms of how you think about you know, the, the issues that you usually see with membranes, we really have no problem with oil and grease. We've done a couple of projects for you know food oil companies that have like emulsions with a couple percent oil in the water, um, and we can do water extraction from mills without a problem. The chemistry is chlorine tolerant. So uh, we use bleach to clean. We no no concern if there's bleach in the water. Obviously, if you're going to go on to another stage and we see a lot of use cases where people are using our membranes to provide pretreatment and then they're going to polishing for RO if they want to reuse the water. At, at that point, you're going to have to deal with the chlorine, of course, uh, before it goes to an RO. But you have a lot of options in terms of, you know, when you're looking at just the, that kind of primary first stage of of filtration Mainly really, we think about solids, honestly. Um, you know, it is still a membrane. They're spiral wound. They're not gonna do great if you let feathers and, and macroscopic objects, you know, try to flow through them. Um so most of our pretreatment concerns are are in things like can we make sure that we've excluded larger solids that are gonna impinge, you know, within the
0: tight clearances in the module. Can you tell us some field studies that you've had experience with? Yeah. So our earliest piloting work which is, you know,
2: about two and a half years ago now, one of the first markets that we went after was anaerobic digesters. Um and so these are, you know, um there's a lot of different types out there and the ones that we focused on first were actually the the manure digesters that are uh, increasingly common in the Midwest. And so these are primarily processing exactly what you think, manure from cattle operations and you know, that's a, that's a tough fluid to deal with. So this is, you're, you're looking at the liquid fraction that comes out of the digester after the anaerobic digestion. You've got a lot of organics. You've got some some fibrous material to deal with too. So it is a multi-stage process. The partner that we've been uh, working with in that market does a kind of a screw press technology first to get all the fiber out. Then we go to the Zwitterco membranes to provide that sort of primary organic concentration And that goes to very high recovery. So these are, you know, maximum water recovery operations. Um, You're targeting usually north of 90% uh, permeate recovery from those operations. And then in that case, uh, they all then went on to RO. And the kind of cool thing about this process is, there's opportunities to valorize the concentrates because there's a lot of nitrogen and phosphorus and nutrients in those concentrates. And so they have some uh, some early work going on with with actually then selling that into the fertilizer market to help the cash flow of the operation. So uh, when we started you know our field studies on this, you know we were really focused on trying to learn about things like how often, how often do we need to clean these, what kind of flux can we run at? Um, you know, any other concerns like that. And then, you know, we went through the usual, we tried one set of conditions, we tried another, we seemed to hone in on a solution that worked. And that's been one of our more active commercial markets. We have uh, a number of those anaerobic digesters that are up and running at full scale uh, with our technology at this point.
0: What are some other industries that you're in? And I'm curious, what are some of the specific issues that come with those industries? Sure, so you know landfills
2: and landfill leachate has has been a popular one and I mean obviously you talk to any landfill operator with leachate right now and and kind of the number one issue they're dealing with is PFAS um, in a lot of that that leachate water so we have a couple installations with landfills again these are these are multi-step trains with uh, usually using the super superfiltration followed by RO to fully remove all the PFAS compounds concentrate them. You know, these are membrane technologies. They don't destroy PFOS. Um, and so there are other technologies out there that are designed for that. But what, what a lot of them benefit from is concentration, right? So instead of treating 200,000 gallons a day through uh, a supercritical water oxidation or, or an you know, electrochemical process, you concentrate it down to maybe 20,000 gallons a day. And that's going to save a lot of capital in that capital-intensive uh, destruction step so that's that's kind of one issue and and we've we've got a couple commercial landfill installations running. probably the biggest theme that we see in the market right now is actually just in the food supply, right so protein production as a theme, right so you look at um, this is meat, poultry, seafood. these are pretty water intensive operations, and that wastewater has a lot of protein, it has a lot of concerns with salmonella and sort of you know disease transmission and what we've found you know in the US and even abroad, is that the water issues for like a meat processor or, or even some of the newer, like plant-based meats and some of the bioprocess uh, foods are, are becoming pretty strategic for those companies. So you know, a few decades ago, if you're a chicken producer, you're thinking about your strategic plan and you're going to plan for an expansion and you need to make sure you can get enough chickens and that sort of thing. Water usually wasn't on that list. But what we're seeing now uh, more and more is that, you know, when people are thinking about, okay, we're going to build new, you know, meat processing or chicken processing or something, water's pretty near the top of the list on strategic concerns to deal with. Um, I think you know there's a there's a public story out that Costco faced this. So Costco went and tried to vertically integrate and do their own broilers to keep that rotisserie broiler at the price point they wanted, and they ended up building you know a, a wastewater treatment plant basically because there was no infrastructure available to deal with the wastewater that they needed to to put in. So that's that's been a, a theme we see. We have a lot of um, work going on in different parts of that market right now between poultry, between beef seafood, aquaculture, these are all areas with a pretty high water intensity. And the water situation is often a sort of capacity limit for those plants. So they might have the space, they have the capital, they have the people to expand, but the infrastructure isn't there either to give them more fresh water or to deal with more uh, wastewater discharge. And then obviously those are fairly consumer facing brands and there's a lot of brand value in in kind of being a leader in, in water stewardship also.
0: What are some other ways that people are using your technology to increase their ability to keep the water within their facility so they don't have to bring on new water?
2: Yeah. So this is one of the the themes that kind of led us to our what's now launching as our second product, which is which is actually an RO technology, you know, with the Zwitterion technology. And that's where we're seeing there was kind of a wave of people, you know, put in a lot of industrial RO, both as say maybe treating the surface water or the well water to go into their process and in many cases to to try to reuse water in that plant. And so there was a big wave of that that went in and and a lot of it works really well. And some of it's really struggling with organic fouling. And so that's, that's where we're um, have just launched uh, that technology and that product coming to market now. And the, the, the first commercial elements just shipped uh, earlier this month, you know, within the effort to to do water reuse, almost always that's going to lead through an RO membrane because people want that, you know, really pure quality. Um, It's often going to lead through several other steps. And so, we have both the sort of the super filtration pretreatment that we can provide, um, especially like in a new construction, you know, when when they're putting in a process and maybe they haven't figured out how to make it work yet. But we're increasingly also seeing the wave of of old, uh, I don't want to say old, but but existing plants that have maybe an RO for reuse and that are that are really struggling with uptime or with cleaning costs and things like that. and and so, Sometimes these plants are like you know facing the difficult decision: do we have to shut this down because this just isn't working? We're you know we're chewing through cleaning chemicals, um, so that's that's kind of one of the areas we see. One of the the fascinating dilemmas with water reuse is, of course, it really starts to blur the lines between what's wastewater and what's water, and wastewater and water have practical definitions. They also have legal definitions, and so there is a lot of. Uh, work that's being done to try to clarify these issues. And this really hits hard in food, where there is understandably some pretty tight regulation about what wastewater touches in a food plant and a lot of confusion about when it goes from being wastewater to water and uh, the circumstances under which that can be done. So we're working through that you know, very carefully with some very informed partners and, and government partners and industry partners. But one of the themes we see is that often the first step in that water reuse for a plant, rather than taking that reclaimed water and maybe going back into the food production process, they have all these other ancillary uses of water on the facility. They're watering the grounds, they're washing trucks, they're they're doing cleaning. And so often the first step in that sort of water reuse rollout is going to be taking used food processing water, creating recycled water and then using that for non-food purposes, therefore drawing down, you know, not using sort of precious freshwater supply for uses where you can really just use reused water.
0: Chris, earlier you mentioned it was hard to build membranes out of hydrophilic materials. Can you speak more on that? Yeah, so
2: there was an early wave of research in both spitter ions and many other hydrophilic materials of let's just try to put this onto an existing membrane, make it more hydrophilic. You know, think of it like a surface treatment. And there was a lot of research that came out, and, and in some cases, it seemed to make a difference, but it would often wash away over time, or, you know, it would seem to to help the rate, but not actually change the, the end result and the outcome. So what makes RitterCo's technology unique is that first, we, we build that entire selective barrier, you know, that that kind of film with all the pores is made out of that ionic material. And so, you know, unlike a, a surface treatment where some fraction of the oil and grease is always going to get through your surface treatment and then it ends up clogged in your membrane, um, the whole membrane is made out of that surface treatment. So this is actually a pretty tough material science challenge. And, you know, if, if any of your listeners are familiar with how membranes have been made traditionally, it kind of relies on using a lot of actually fairly common basically plastics, things like nylon, things like phone, PVDF, and then going through a manufacturing process to kind of coax that into being a porous material. And that entire process actually relies on the fact that You know, when those contact water, they're gonna they're gonna fall out of solution because they're fundamentally plastics. That's kind of how membrane casting works. To build a membrane that's so hydrophilic um, that it that it's immune to fouling, you have to, you have to approach the problem a different way, right? You can't rely on putting it in a solvent and dipping it in a water bath because it's gone. It's just gonna dissolve in the water. So what Zwitterco is founded on, and, and the really cool piece of the technology is you can think of it as combining this kind of one. Field of chemistry that's dealing with how can we make really hydrophilic materials. And then there's this other branch of chemistry on self assembling materials. And so for a while, you know, you could, there was like a journal of self assembling materials and a journal of hydrophilic materials, you know. And, and this, what's cool about the technology is it really combines these into one technology platform. And so when we make our membranes, we are designing the materials they're made out of. I mean, we make our own chemistry. You know, we do not, we we have to synthesize all the stuff we make these membranes out of. And we can design those polymers and those materials to give them the properties we're looking for. And the specific property we want is that when we form it into this film, we want water to be able to pass through, right? That's the whole point. And so by combining these kind of two different fields of chemistry, we have these materials that, that do, you know, when you sort of... Uh, apply them under the right conditions, they self-assemble into a porous material and those pore structures are made out of one of the most hydrophilic materials that, that we have access to. And so that's kind of what makes it really powerful. There's a lot more that goes into the chemistry because we have to stabilize it. We have to make sure it's you know, durable and chemical resistant and all the other properties we need, which is why we have to make our own chemistry. But we manufacture these in a fundamentally different way. Um, you know our manufacturing lines don't look like a conventional membrane manufacturing line because we're we're getting a lot of the performance that we want by the chemistry that we're starting with. And you know sort of you can contrast that with buying what's fundamentally a normal plastic and then having a process to kind of coax it into being a membrane. These materials are fundamentally membrane materials.
0: Chris, we have experts on the show. There's normally that one piece of information that if everybody knew, it would make your job easier, or it would make our job easier. What's that one thing you want everybody in the Scaling Up Nation to know about membranes? That's a great question.
2: You know, when we look at where are the sectors in the market and what are the challenges people are trying to solve in those sectors... There's some low-hanging fruit. There's some obvious ones, you know, and, and and obviously the people that already realize this are like, of course. But, you know, when you think about the different types of technology that are out there, and, and whether we're talking about membranes or other new technologies, you can kind of break most water treatment technologies down into things that do separation and things that do elimination. And there, there can be a surprising amount of confusion on that. You know, so one, one consequence is just like RO or NF or UF, Every membrane installation is you're going to have a concentrate, right? You, you know, everything we remove is going to end up in a much smaller volume. And, you know, we like, and our, our data shows we can usually um, achieve, you know, some of the highest recovery rates um, that are available with membrane technology, but it's not 100%. And so, you know, when we look at a lot of these plants and, and we start doing, you know, trying to understand their water problems, you know, occasionally we'll get kind of down that road and realize, oh, you need this to disappear. You don't need to separate it, and so that's that's kind of one angle that that it's helpful for people to think about if they're thinking about their say you've got a flow and you got you know I don't know you know five hundred ppm of BOD in it. We can concentrate that, right? We we can we can give you clean water that's low in oil and grease, low in BOD, but all that pounds of material still got to go somewhere, and so uh, it's helpful to think through when you're thinking about your water challenges. We can separate things, we can combine them, and there are technologies on the market. You can digest them, you can turn them into sludge, but everything that's coming out of that operation has got to have a home eventually.
0: If we were able to get into a time machine and go into the future, where do you see the membrane technology going?
2: So what we're working on, you know, and the opportunities we see, there's, there's a couple trends, I think that through talking to the, our customers, we're starting to pick up on. You know, I talked earlier about protein and food and the really strong connection between the food supply chain and, and water scarcity and water issues. And you can kind of go through the entire food chain and just spot water issue after water issue, especially as sort of agriculture and farming is going through intensification, you know, trying to get more out of each acre, right? That's creating a lot of follow-on water issues that, of course, then get even more compounded by by climate issues and drought and those sort of things. So we are, in terms of the technology focus, we're trying to understand where all those unmet needs are. I think that you're going to see MBR is a very powerful technology that's had a great rollout and... I, you know, I you know, I, I of course personally think it's uh, it's a fantastic technology that probably needs some better and better membrane materials that are more suited to handling these you know really high suspended solids and high organic fractions. A lot of people have issues with like foaming in their MBRs and then your options for anti-foam are limited by the membrane chemistry. So I would expect, you know, if we had that time machine, there's probably a, a really nice new generation of MBR technology that is getting denser, is getting more compact, is getting more capital efficient. In desalination, of course, the progress in polyamide seawater desalination technology is just unbelievable. And so, you know, you're probably not going to see a magic membrane comes out that just reduces the energy to do desalination. With fairly high certainty, that's not going to happen. But what you do see is people are trying to build desalination plants in less and less ideal areas. And so as countries and states are turning to desalination when they need to, to increase their freshwater supply, they don't always have the luxury of picking an area with really low algae potential and really low biofouling and really well-designed beach wells and all the, the great, you know... Uh, techniques that have evolved to make those plants run at these incredible specific energy values, and you know, even getting into the politics, you see there's there's increasing pushback to like the really large scale 100 mGD, 200 mGD desal plants. So I think one of the places that you will see membrane technologies start to affect that is as you get more biofouling resistant materials, as you get more pretreatment options that are more modular that scale down well. You know, you start seeing these 20 MGD, 50 MGD plants that are built in really non-ideal locations that have issues with algae, that have issues with biofouling. You don't always have the luxury of building a mega plant at the perfect spot,
0: uh, you know, on the ocean. By the way, you have to trademark the term magic membrane. <laughs> exactly. That's we'll we make it. I promise. <laughs> that, is, that, is, uh, tr- that is marketing genius right there. Let me ask... If somebody wants to learn more about the products from your company, what should they do? So uh,
2: you know, obviously we we have a website, and I'm actually excited to say our if you uh, depending on when this airs, we we do have a new website uh, coming out um, in a few weeks that'll have a lot more case studies and a lot more application data. We are also uh, prepping to do a little bit of an unveiling of some of our innovation center here. So we've made some pretty large investments, uh, both in our lab resources, but also in, in pilot manufacturing resources that we have at our disposal to bring new membranes to market. And uh, as that website relaunches, uh, there will be, I believe, a tour. It's probably a, 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 more like a December, January, but that'll, that'll be out there to learn more about our innovation process. Our team is really also active at a lot of the industry events, so we've got a bunch of people even this week in Europe at, at Aquatech. We'll have folks giving case studies at, at all the major conferences you know, through the conference season.
0: And we'll make sure to have information on our show notes page as well to make it easy for people to find you. I got a couple of lightning round questions for you if you're ready for those. Sure, let's do it. All right. We spoke about a time machine before, so we're going to get back into that time machine. Go back to your very first day as a chemical engineer. What advice would you give yourself? Oh, that's a tough one.
2: Um, I think you know one of the one of the things I wish I had had thought more about earlier or known more about earlier is, you know, when you when you're getting into the industry, it's you you really need to put some thought into how you specialize. Right. And so I didn't start my career in membranes, actually. I I worked uh, for a little while in material science, actually in the electric industry. And I did a lot of work with PCB contamination and and, uh, insulating materials. And and ironically, a lot of the chemistry lessons crossed over. You know, we're wrapping wires in plastic films that have to keep water out. There's a lot of similarities, actually, in in some of the work. But you know i think it's not always uh, obvious how specialized some of these domains are and you know i think if you if you get the chance to talk to to one of the the membrane gurus right that can just they're everywhere you know i think every membrane company has got a couple that just know how to make a membrane you don't learn that in school right you you learn that by making membranes and so you know if you're a chemical engineer in the workforce you got to realize that chemical engineering is is a pretty broad endeavor, and you're going to need to be thinking about those really um, specific skills that you're going to need to acquire that are not in textbooks. So, so that was something that wasn't obvious to me in the beginning. Um, and fortunately, I found my way into it and, and had some great mentors and and learned the trade. But I think, you know, had I realized how critical those sort of industry Specific skills are, you know, it really just emphasizes choose with intention early and make sure that, you know, you realize that as you go down one road and pick up a bunch of skills and you want to switch to a different type of field later, you're going to start over.
0: (laughs) What are the last few books that you've read?
2: Well, uh, I guess I'll start with the on the on the fiction side. I mean, you know, well, I guess we'll start there. Uh, I finally finished off; it was a Blue Mars, so the, the Kim Stanley Robinson trilogy, um, which took me a couple of years of, of fits and starts to go through all of them. But that was that was great to finish off. On the nonfiction side, there's a great book called The Nature of Technology. The author's name is escaping me at the moment, but I'm sure we'll, we'll get it in the show notes. And It's a really kind of fascinating story to kind of weave through different um, case studies of of sort of how technology hits the market and then evolves and migrates and becomes what we know and see today. Because it's it's actually pretty common, you know, when you get down to it, you think of sort of mass-adopted technologies. Cell phones is a great example, you know, the internet. They often look absolutely nothing like what people forecasted when they hit market. And so they go through this process that almost looks like evolution, you know, in, in a biological sense. So that was, a, that was a
0: fascinating read. What are some of your favorite membrane resources that you turn to? Sure. So I will be a little cliche and say I have uh,
2: some fantastic people that are by far the best resource to go to here. And, and I mean that quite literally. Um, there are some great uh, membrane texts out. There are some wonderful journals. And there's been some great new journals that have come out, even with Journal Membrane Science. But there's... Um, there's a couple other new ones and even open access ones that are out now. But ultimately, you know, if you're in membranes, you're going to eventually meet one of these people that you say, can you make a 15 K UF membrane? And, and it takes them like a day. And, and that's hard to, to write in a book.
0: <laughs> when Hollywood makes a movie about your life, who do you want playing Chris Drover? Oh, I, I would be so privileged. Um, I I will admit I am probably
2: not uh, up to speed on the the current cadre of of Hollywood stars to give a a salient answer to it. But uh, I'll just say I I hope that they um, don't make me too eccentric because I I do have my moments of normalcy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if I get to take a stab at it, I would say Ed Norton. I, I could live with that. You know, I'm a, I'm a product of the, the Fight Club era. Um, you know, growing up uh, with, with that as one of our uh, sneak out of the house and, and uh, go watch movies our parents didn't want us to. <laughs> You've already said
0: too much about Fight Club. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> My last question for you, if you could talk with anybody throughout history, who to be with and why?
1: I,
2: I would be absolutely fascinated to see the reaction – um, Some of the earlier figures, especially in the Industrial Revolution, you know, as people were, you know, you always think about how would people in history react to the modern era. And, and, you know, reality is for a lot of people through history, it was, you know, probably some mix of of shock and disbelief. But I I think it would be really fascinating to talk to some of the late, late 19th century people engaged in science and and industry, because I think they they probably did have at that point – the vision of, of hey this is the future and it would be fascinating to think to see you know for some of the early folks that were really developing the field of chemical engineering you know and mechanical engineering that probably did think about what future technology would hold and and in you know, or at least engage in that and and see uh see what their thoughts are and and find out you know where are we ahead of pace or behind, you know? And I think, I think you'd find, you'd find both, you know, there was certainly an era when it was like, oh, year 2000, we're flying cars and that certainly didn't come to pass. Um, But on the flip side, I, you know, I don't know that uh, a lot of people in that era conceived of the internet or, or large scale desalination and some of the things that are pretty easy to take for granted today.
0: Chris, I want to thank you for coming on the Scaling Up H2O podcast and educating us more about membranes.
2: Thank you, it's my pleasure.
0: Well, Nation, I am sure you have learned something from that interview. I know I did. And like I said, I remember a footnote in a chemistry book about zwitter ions, and maybe it had just been a term that was defined, but we did not go into it the way that Chris did today. So thank you, Chris, for coming on the Scaling Up H2O podcast, and thank you for bringing new technologies for us to consider how we're doing wastewater, how we're taking care of our customers. And I tell you, that is a hard word to say, Zwitterion. So with that, maybe you can say it better than I can. And now we all know what that is, and we all know what to look for. Nation, the other day, I was talking with somebody that was thanking me for recording some of our water treatment guests. And unfortunately, Some of our water treatment guests are no longer with us. And last year was a big year for losing a lot of people that were very close to me in the industrial water treatment community. One that comes to mind is Rob Ferguson. And many of us know Rob Ferguson because he was the person behind WaterCycle. And WaterCycle, if you are creating a product for the water treatment community, Rob created this database so you could predict how your product was going to perform in different types of industrial water. And Rob was just so gracious with all the information that he had. I know I talked to him on more than one occasion. And Rob was one of those guys that just wanted to help everyone. I remember when I was just starting out, he told me I couldn't afford his software, but eventually I would be able to, and he gave me a copy. I mean, that's just amazing. That's the kind of guy he was. And here's the cool thing. I was able to record him. It was one of my earlier episodes, so maybe you want to hear from Rob Ferguson. Well, you can. That's going to be episode 43, and it's entitled The One with the Water Cycle Guy. Now, Rob had his own language when he spoke But he was just such a wealth of knowledge on all things water treatment. So here's something that I want to encourage everybody to do. I hope everybody has a mentor that somebody that they can talk to to help them get further in their water treatment career, in their water treatment knowledge, and just have a great relationship with. Eventually, we're going to have to give all the knowledge that we have in our head to somebody else so they can carry that and make that even greater. So my next challenge for you is to try to be a mentor for somebody else. Think of all the knowledge that you have inside your head and why would you want to waste that? Why not share that with somebody? Because when you do that, you're improving the water treatment industry to whomever you're talking with and you're having fun in the process. Here's the other thing that happens, though. When you share information with other people, you now get to know the information that you already know on a higher level. Because when you explain something to somebody, when you teach it to somebody, it's a totally different experience. And through those questions, it's going to allow you to examine the information that you already know in a different way to get you to know it in a different way. I just get excited thinking about that because that's something that I like to do with any opportunity that I can get talking with somebody in this industry. That's why I teach with the Association of Water Technologies. That's why I do this podcast. That's why I do coaching. It's because it allows me to get information out and allows me to gain a lot more information, even information that I already think I know. I get to know it in a totally better and different way. So Nation, I hope you take it from me and I hope you take advantage of of that. I also hope that you tune in to a brand new episode next Friday. Until then, have a great week, folks. Do you wish you had your own private tutor to help you study for the certified water technologist examination? Well, now you do. So many of you have asked me to help you with the mock CWT examination, and I've done that very thing. If you go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep, again, that's scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep, you will see that I've created a course and I tell you everything I know about each one of those mock questions. It's my hope that that helps give you the confidence you need to sign up to get certified today.